Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And yet again, a multimedia extravaganza this week. <laughs> not only do we have our usual podcast, not only do we have our vlog, but also Facebook Live, everyone. Yay! Yay! So, as it's an opportune moment, the latest issue is just out in the States and in the UK. The same cover for both. Right. Um, Seems a good time, Lynn, um, okay. to tell us a bit about it. Sure, people are probably seeing that backwards. Oh, yeah. But it says, How to Switch Off Pain. And this issue is a really fantastic issue because it's got all kinds of information about pain. Um, primarily back pain, but also joint pain. Um, the lead story about it is an amazing story about the fact that most incidences of back pain are always considered mechanical. You know, something wrong with the way you're aligned with your spine or a compressed disc or something like that. But the latest evidence that's so amazing shows that in many, many cases, this is a case of a bacterial infection. There's infection right in the spine, and that's causing the pain. And not only that, there are some simple solutions, one of which is incredibly injectable ozone. That's having amazing success. So please, you know, read all about it. Hmm. Um, we're also doing, besides uh, back pain, we've also got an article by two amazing doctors who have studied and worked on and helped to treat successfully pelvic pain. Now that's a problem, believe it or not, Brian, that affects both men and women. And doctors don't know how to do anything for this. And these guys have found a really successful three-part plan for getting rid of most pelvic pain. And finally, on the pain theme, we also have a story, How I Beat Ankylosing spondylitis, which is a really nasty arthritis of the back and joints. And it is usually considered incurable. People who have it are often told you can expect to end up in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And one of the people that we interviewed, um, who is just so fantastic, decided not to take that kind of life sentence and took it into his own hands and cured it with diet, diet and supplements. Mm. So again, read all about it mm. in this issue. And uh, the issue also looks at um, alcohol, how much is safe for us to drink, if any. Um, and this is in response to a uh, UK government report, which is actually the most party pooperish of them all, saying that no amount of alcohol is safe for us at all. So we review that and um, come up with some quite interesting uh, conclusions. So that's well worth a read. Yeah, and it's by a guy called Tony Edwards, a very seasoned journalist, who has written a book called The Good News About Booze. And he is really an expert now on, you know, safe levels of drinking and that it actually, in many cases, when it's handled safely, is actually good for your health. Hmm. So worth a read, again, worth a read. Hmm. And I think you're doing a piece on uh, arrhythmia and heart problems and the Unsteady Heartbeat, which I think is really worth worth reading. And every month I do a little essay at the back of the book, and which again is in, in this issue, which as I say is just out today 
in shops across the UK and the US, in which we discuss the discovery of the second largest organ in the human body, which medicine has never realised was there before. And um, they say, well, actually, it does explain things like acupuncture. So, you know, a good read for everyone. Hope you do pick it up. And um, you can also um, join our community if you haven't already done so. And we've we've got a giveaway at the moment, um, three health facts which you can start introducing into your life as of today and start seeing a difference. And that's yours to take away today if you join our website, which is wddty.com, and then forward slash giveaway, G-I-V-E-A-W-A-Y, wddty.com forward slash giveaway. Include your email details and we'll send you the three super duper health tips. And as always, these are not all the usual things that you find on the internet. You know, we've got a team of really seasoned journalists who research these kinds of things and find out up-to-the-minute stuff that you can't find anywhere else. Okay, well, look, we're going to get on with the podcast, but all you Facebook livers, thanks for joining us today, and we'll catch up with you again soon. Bye-bye. Okay, well, medicine prides itself on being a science, but, you know, of course, it's as much to do with fashion as anything else and um, you know we've seen that with things like blood pressure levels which um, have been all over the place in the last 40 years but I'm also old enough to remember when eggs were once seen to be good for us and then they became extremely dangerous and that any sort of dairy eggs high fat anything was going to fur up our arteries and kill us And uh, for many people, eggs have been off the breakfast menu uh, forever. And and, um, a new study has come out and said, well, that was a complete waste of time because actually eggs don't cause cardiovascular disease. But better than that, they could actually help protect it. So we've gone from this evil thing that is furring up our arteries to something that actually protects us against heart disease. And goodness knows what they'll come up with next. But uh, that's where we stand right now. But people who eat at least one egg a day halve their risk of cardiovascular disease, which includes both stroke and heart attack. And, um, yeah, I don't know. What do you make of all that, Lynn? It's, uh... Well, I mean, I think that this is just so frustrating because it's still... In many places, when you travel to a hotel in America or Canada, as I just did, Mm. they'll say healthy option and it'll be an egg white omelette. They want to take out the yolk, which is really the, you know, the healthiest part of the egg. Mm. And they will, you know, and oftentimes the less allergenic part of the egg. Mm. Um, And so there's still this myth going on Mm. about high cholesterol foods causing cholesterol Mm. and that was the big false trail that we've Mm. followed Mm. for many decades based on terrible faulty science Mm. you know um this all came about from Mm. a uh a study that supposedly looked at heart disease in seven countries but had the researcher included all of the countries he would have found that 
the food cholesterol made no difference mm. in terms of heart disease. And of course, mm. this is all part of a bigger, bigger issue involving money, mm. involving yeah. the processed food industry. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you're right. It, it was the Southern Countries study, which was published in the 1970s, which triggered the whole low-fats industry, as well as the statin drug industry, both multi-billion dollar enterprises. And um, the lead researcher, Ansel Keys, himself actually said, towards the end of his life, um, that cholesterol in our food doesn't add to cholesterol load in our bodies. He said, because we're not rabbits, he said. And interestingly, Keyes, towards the very end of his life, tried to get a paper published, which pretty much you know, changed his whole attitude about cholesterol and diet, and no one would publish it. Because by then, you know, he'd, he'd set off a whole industry. And they were very busy turning you know, a nice profit on low-fat foods and on statin drugs. And this complete nonsense was allowed to run. And, of course, for many, many people, it meant they were on a processed diet because a lot of low-fat foods are processed. And that's a much bigger danger. It's a much bigger contributory factor to cardiovascular disease than anything else. It goes back to John Yudkin, mm. who was really one of the first to write about the real problem with heart disease being sugar and many, many other degenerative diseases and not cholesterol. And he was ridiculed, attacked, bullied in, in every way, as were other early seers mm. saying basically, hey, folks, it's sugar, it's processed food. Mm. And that, as you say, this is now big food is as big as big pharma. Mm. And they have a vested interest in keeping this myth going. Mm. So... Bottom line is, eggs are great for you, mm. you know. Um, they, um, they're really, really a superfood. Yeah. And it's, you know, worth adding that um, all these years, 30, 40 years of low-fat diets or statin drugs, cardiovascular disease is still the number one killer in the mm. West, which I think says it all, really, doesn't it? <laughs> it sure does. So I guess they must have been yoking. <laughs> okay. Well, drugs... And medicine in general is considered to be the third major cause of death in the West. And of course, you know, most drugs are taken by older people, people in their 60s and 70s and beyond. And not just one drug, but many drugs in a phenomenon called polypharmacy. And um, there's been a new study done um, looking at the older people who come out of hospital and the drugs they're prescribed. And in 80% of cases, four out of five people are being given the wrong prescription. And um, as a result, this can cause all sorts of side effects, adverse reactions, up to and including death. And of course, you know, the trouble with a lot of drug deaths is that they often are not recorded because, you know, that every drug death is an isolated incident. And... If you don't suspect the drug in the first place, the cause of death is never recorded as being that. Mm -hmm. And yet, most people leaving hospital are being given the wrong drug to take. And, you know, this, this is an, obviously an absolute scandal um, that the um, researchers from Aberdeen Royal Infirmary, which is in Scotland, have, have discovered. Um, they tracked the people who had been given the wrong medications 
and half at that point had already died. Can't say for sure that it was a direct result of the drug, but nonetheless, it, it at least must have been a contributory factor. Well, it, this is not surprising, Brian, because no. when you understand that most older people, you know, people 50 and older, are on about seven medications, mm. this is just typical of the confusion that can result. Mm. And, and one of the things that no one's taking into consideration is, you know, this is incidences of mistakes. Mm -hmm. And gosh, are they enormous. Mm -hmm. And even though this is the UK, these figures, the same thing happens in America, mm. largely because there's so many drugs to choose from. There's so much going on in the hospital. Mm. Each patient is taking so many drugs. It's a recipe for disaster. Mm. But what really bothers me the most is there's not much evidence. There's almost no evidence about polypharmacy. No. You know, and when we look at chemicals outside in the, you know, in in the, you know, in the atmosphere, pollutants, etc., one of the big problems, say a lot of researchers, <laughs> is that one chemical reacting to another chemical magnifies its effect multiple times. Mm. So if you think people are taking seven different medications with loads of different side effects, you know, it starts to become impossible to even calculate the danger that they have, mm. you know. Yeah. Well, there was a separate study that ran in parallel with this one, which found that um, one in three people do suffer an adverse reaction to a drug. And um, they say that half of those cases they could have been they could have been prevented, which does suggest medical error. It does suggest an inappropriate drug or given at the wrong uh, dosage. I mean, they don't say. And this new study, which found this level of eighty percent of, of errors, only came about because there's a new analytical tool that they've been able to use to sort of run over the figures. Because before that, they didn't have that facility. Yeah, and although they're not counting the bodies, we have to remember that correctly prescribed drugs are the third leading cause of death. Mm. Correctly prescribed drugs are the third leading cause of death after heart disease and stroke. Mm. And that is a scary entity. Mm. That is basically saying that, you know, there's something wrong, not just mm. with inappropriately prescribed drugs, but the ones that actually people were prescribed correctly to take. Mm. And this, you know, is wrong across many levels. Obviously, most importantly, it's wrong from an individual point of view where someone, someone's life ends prematurely. Uh, but it's wrong from a societal point of view as well, where in the UK, we, we, taxpayers' funds are to the tune of £115 billion a year, uh, fund the National Health Service, where I believe in America, uh, health care costs about $3 trillion. And... Um, you know, but at no point is anyone stopping and saying, look, we need to look at this and there must be a better way. And, and it doesn't mean to say necessarily throwing drugs out of the picture, but clearly there's a lot that could be done. And the pharmaceutical industry needs to play its part in trying to reduce these costs and more importantly, reduce, reduce the death rate. Well, and that is the nub of the problem. Um, we've got somebody providing the tools of the trade where it's a for-profit situation. And so really we need the doctors, we need the hospitals, 
we need the National Health Care Service in the UK and in America, the, you know, the insurance companies to start looking at this and saying, wait a minute, we're just spending way too much on inappropriate drugs. And that's where the big costs go all the time. Okay, someone gets a fever. What's the first thing a doctor is trained to do? Bring it down. Bring it down. Bring down the fever very, very quickly. And they'll do whatever they can to do that. And um, it actually is not the best thing to do. A new study has discovered that um, fever is the body's natural defense against a range of diseases that you'd never guess, such as cancer. If someone's had a fever, I remember this from a study from years ago from Italy, that uh, someone who has a fever, has had a fever in the previous five years, is far less likely to develop cancer. Now, isn't that fascinating? And this new study seems to endorse that very view, that the more the body temperature rises above the so-called normal, which is 37 degrees centigrade, 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, the more the body's natural defense system springs into action and it provides um, a stronger defense against tumors, wounds, and infections. Whereas, uh, conversely, a low body temperature, which is uh, classified at around 34 degrees centigrade, uh, which can happen when we sleep, the body naturally drops it up, it, it can actually trigger inflammatory processes such as heart disease, which is quite interesting. Doesn't mean to say that every time you go to sleep you'd like to get heart disease, but the point is if the body's temperature is kept abnormally low for very long periods, you're more likely to get heart disease. And it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because it's it's something that um, you know a few alternative practitioners have picked up on. There is the heat therapy for hmm. cancer, and indeed your former president, Ronald Reagan, had heat therapy to reverse a cancer, which was kept out of the national papers, but that indeed did happen. And, um, yeah, so it's interesting stuff, Lynn. What, what do you reckon? Well, and I think what's so outrageous are two elements here. One is that this is not news, mm. the whole idea of heat and raised body temperature helping to cure cancer. There was a guy called Coley, who developed a thing called Coley's toxins many years ago, many years ago. And he would give patients some toxins that would raise the body temperature. And he was getting fantastic success treating, successfully treating cancer. He was one of those cancer pioneers who also got demonized and attacked and is, you know, ended up having to treat outside the, uh, the U.S., and, you know, and so that story goes on. But there are many, many areas um, in little pockets of places where clinics are experimenting or successfully using methods that raise the body temperature. Get the person to, whether they induce a fever or they just create a very raised, you know, a very hot situation to raise the temperature. And... I think that's one thing. The second thing is, let's just think about vaccines against flu. You know, we're so attempting all the time to stop people from getting illnesses that would raise their body temperature. And this is 
probably flu is probably nature's protective effect you know getting flu or a really big cold once a year is not only a good clear out but it's also a way of just kick-starting that immune system as you say okay when people do medical research they often come away saying you know this vitamin vitamin doesn't work there's not enough there's no evidence for it waste of money and all the rest of it and it's usually because medicine doesn't get it, doesn't understand vitamins or vitamins. Because what they invariably are testing are the cheapest possible ones you can get your hands on. And, you know, frankly, a lot of this stuff, you might as well throw away the contents and eat the cardboard. It really is that useless. You know, you, you, if you are going to be serious about your health and nutrition, you've got to buy the good stuff. And they never test the good stuff. I don't know why they don't. Maybe they don't want to have a positive result. I'm not sure what the reason is, but why they don't. Maybe they don't have the money. I don't know. But anyway, all the time they're testing the wrong stuff. And you know, and yet again, the you know, researchers from University of Toronto have come up with the conclusion that popular multivitamins and vitamin D and C just don't have any protective qualities. There's no point in taking them. And they said there's only exceptions were the B vitamins and folic acid. I know you've got something to say about that in particular, Lynn. But what do you reckon to all that, Lady Stoke? Well, I mean, this is, you know, what happened with a number of studies that were big scare stories about vitamins. Mm. Uh, some years back, they were basically saying vitamin E is not only not protective, against mm. um, heart disease, but it actually causes it. Mm. And they were using very low levels and also cheap levels, uh, cheap materials with the vitamin E they were testing. So that's they another were, trick. They, they was worth just, just, they're also using smokers. Yeah. They were smokers. <laughs> and vitamin E does have that, you know, that contrary effect if you're smoking. Yes. So, I mean, again, it was a kind of a stacked deck. Mm. So... There's the big problem of cheap vitamins. There's the big problem of the tests always using far below um, what's required. Mm. I mean, when you look at studies of vitamin C, mm. they'll give some patient 200 milligrams of vitamin C for a cold and say, see, it doesn't work. Mm. But if you talk to most practitioners who, who treat with vitamin C, first sign of the cold, they give 10 grams an hour. And they're giving more and more and more until the patient reaches bowel tolerance. Mm. So there's the levels. Mm. But then there's also the subtlety of, of actual, you know, substances. Something like folic acid, where, you know, doctors have realized that uh, pregnant women may be low in this vitamin. So they want to put it in foods. They want all pregnant women to take it. But the problem is, it's much more nuanced than that. Um, certain people, and a, a large percentage of people, have certain mutations that make it hard for them to process something like folic acid. They need the more natural folate. Otherwise, it has an opposite effect. So you, the bottom line is, mm. Brian, you need to know what you're doing. Mm. And one of the really scary parts about this is Big Pharma, more and more, is buying up vitamin companies and producing cheap and nasty versions of vitamins that they sell in drugstores. 
Um, and they're also trying to create this across Europe with a level playing field of very low levels of vitamins. Mm. And as you say, you might as well be eating the cardboard that it mm. comes in or the plastic. It's probably better for you. Mm. Well, vitamins are in the vanguard of the wellness industry and really the pharmaceutical industry is interested in the sickness industry. And that's that's the problem. And, um, you know, with this business of RDA, Lynn, you know, the recommended daily allowance, I mean, it's based on the minimal amounts to prevent disease. And I, I think one of the models they actually adopted for C was to prevent scurvy. Well, scurvy is the last stage of the human body before it's dead. And so you're talking about the absolute minimal amounts to keep life sustained, as opposed to what we're talking about is wellness, is flourishing health and wellness. I mean, thankfully, there are so many innovative vitamin companies that are producing really quality products. But it does really behoove you to, when you are looking for the right vitamins to take, is perhaps consult an integrative specialist, and that means, you know, a naturopath or somebody with a really good knowledge of nutrition who can talk to you about the right dosages. And of course, our magazine gives dosages every month um, <clears throat> when we're writing about specific illnesses. But you need to take enough and you need to take stuff of good quality. Okay, we, um, we spoke at the top of the program about the three health tips, which is available to anyone who signs up on our community, and that's um, wddty.com forward slash giveaway, um, and uh, in which you get three health tips, as I say, and one of them is be socially active, join a social group. And um, a lot of us, I suppose, when we retire, I don't know if this is true of Americans, Lynn, but you know, certainly of Brits, when they think about retiring, they, they think of nothing greater than the idea of this country idyll, of the roses around the cottage, you know, in this little rural community where obviously lots of murders occur, because we know that from... But apart from that, it's, it, it's a place to retire, you know, quiet and all the rest of it. And um, a new study has come out and said, you know, that's just about the very worst thing you can do. You've got to stay socially active, You've got to be in a community because that what keeps the old neural circuits firing in your brain and keep you mentally sharp and free of Alzheimer's and dementia. You know, and so the last thing you should be doing is actually becoming isolated. Well, and I think what's so interesting is when you look at all of the evidence about community, I it's kind of the best vitamin you pill you can take mm. because. We find, looking at the evidence, that being socially active, having a community, being connected, prevents you from getting stroke, all kinds of other illnesses, heart disease, even the common cold. Studies of heart disease demonstrate that half of the patients who get heart disease are simply lonely. And there's also some really amazing evidence from Harvard demonstrating that if you join a group next year, just one group, whether it's a book group, bowling group, any kind of group like that, you will literally have your chances of dying. That's how important this community stuff is. And, you know, there's another really interesting issue about community that is so powerful. They did a study looking at Americans um, who had depression versus 
uh, communities in the Far East who had genetic predisposition to depression. So they should have had, were more likely to get depression than the Americans. That's not what they found. They found that these people were protected in the Far East, even if, even if they were supposed to get depression, their genetic coding said they were likely to do it because they had really close-knit communities. And that is, you, you can find that oftentimes with these kinds of communities, it almost doesn't matter what they eat. Doesn't matter, you know, whether, and they certainly found that with Japanese people, um, transplants to the U U.S. Um, some got heart disease, some didn't. The Japanese don't usually get heart disease, even if they smoke. Yeah. And when they looked further and drilled down further, they found didn't matter what they ate, whether it was Big Macs and, and fries or tofu and sushi. What mattered, and the only thing that mattered, is whether they had a strong, tight community. Hmm. And just worth saying, just uh, as an aside, that we are recording this in a basement beneath a, a, an elephant um, <laughs> compound. So there's a lot of thumping noise above, which you may be picking up, but you know, our excellent sound engineer, Buster Manson, is doing everything he can to reduce the sound of the elephants. But of course, it, we can't, he's, not, he's, only, he's only human after all. So there's only so much he can do. But anyway, going back to this whole subject of uh, isolation, it's worth saying to our listeners that you know we do wear many hats. But if you're from the tax office, we don't wear many hats. And um, <laughs> one that Lynn wears is is your extraordinary work outside of what doctors don't tell you, which is the power of eight and the work on intention and how people working together in a group as a small community have not just prevent Alzheimer's, they have extraordinary healing effects, both on themselves and on the person for whom they're intending. And um, I know this is not the time or place, but I thought we should give Lynn a plug here. Power of Eight, an astonishing book. Softbacks are going to come out this September. Look her up on, on the website. It, but truly, miracles are happening, Lynn. Well, and I think that's what amazed me and what made me look at community further, was just watching... People come together in a group of eight or so, send a healing intention together as a group, you know, call it prayer. And we were getting and we continue to get amazing healings. People healed in an instant, healed in 10 minutes. And of course, the journalist in me completely disregarded this, rejected it for many years. I've been a witness to this for over 10 years uh, until it became overwhelming and we started doing scientific studies on it. But it just goes to show that the best thing you can have is a community, and even better, as Brian says, put them together, have them send a healing intention to each other, and watch what happens. Mm. Well, look, the positive note on which to end this week's podcast, thank you all for listening. My name is Brian Hubbard, and I look forward to talking with you again very soon. I'm Lynn McTaggart. Have a great and healthy week. <laughs>